Hi, this is Carolyn Neelachlan, your hostess with the mostest of From Paper to People podcast, and you're listening to Pop Goes Your World. If you haven't already, subscribe on iTunes. And while you're there, please leave us a rating and review. And now it's time for our feature presentation. I'm Chris McBrien, and the pop culture from Generation X is everything to me. And I'm Derek Myers, and I'm here to educate Chris on the great pop culture of today's generation. Episode 194, for your eyes only, movie review. Derek Myers, welcome to Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. Last episode, we held a pop culture fantasy draft for the year 1981. The judges' decisions are in, and we're going to announce a winner tonight. We're also going to be reviewing the 1981 James Bond film, For Your Eyes Only. But before we get to all that, Derek, what pop culture have you been able to take in over the last week, my friend? Hey, Chris. Hi. I have had a chance to take in some great stuff. Cool. Well, and a couple of okay things, but I have a couple of great ones here for you. Okay. First of all, I started it by watching the movie The Father from last year. It won Anthony Hopkins an Academy Award. It was nominated for Best Picture. Um, have you had a chance to see this one? Nope. Haven't even heard of it. All right. It it, it it is about an elderly gentleman played by Anthony Hopkins, pardon me, Sir Anthony Hopkins, who is suffering from dementia or starting to to suffer from dementia. And it's the story of how his family is coping with this, but it's told from his point of view. So the way the story is knit together is very interesting and very creative and really gives you a sense of how difficult it is for both the person suffering from the dementia and their loved ones who, you know, are powerless to help them. And uh, it was fantastic. It, it, it was nominated for uh, a whole bunch of Academy Awards. It was certainly deserving of all of the nominations. It was quite good. And, and it's very sad movie. You'll definitely cry at the end. Well, you probably cry throughout. It, it was it was quite good. Anthony Hopkins, very deserving of that accolade. He was quite good in it. Then I saw one that was maybe not quite that good, but also came out last year okay. called Mortal Kombat, based on the video game called Mortal Kombat. Wasn't there a movie Mortal Kombat back in like the early 90s? Yep, there have been a few different yeah. Mortal Kombat movies. This one was basically a reboot of their franchise oh where if ever there was there was a franchise that was not in need of a reboot, it was probably Mortal Kombat. Well, <laughs> I think with a lot of movies like this, when they first put them out, they didn't really know how to how to do it in such a way that it would get a wide audience. You knew the video game people were going to come and see it, and right. you knew movie nerds were going to go and see it. Um, but beyond that, it doesn't necessarily have a mass appeal. And then Marvel Comics decided to do their movie making in such a way as to try to make the silly and ridiculous a little more grounded and and get decent actors and give it a decent story and try and thread in a little bit of believability. And I think that's what they tried to do with this Mortal Kombat is they said, like, look, on its face, it, it's a ridiculous premise. And some of these characters can do 
crazy things that are are akin to superheroes. So that was sort of the the framework that they seemed to use to make this movie. And by taking it a little more seriously, or as serious as you can for a movie that's based on a video game, it was actually pretty good. Now, it didn't have any super A-list, A-plus actors in it. I honestly, I don't think I recognized any of the, I recognized one guy in it. He, he had a role in the Supergirl TV show, but I didn't recognize anybody else in this movie, but they were okay. Like they weren't, they weren't terrible. And, uh, the special effects were great. The way that they set up the lore of this, of this intellectual property was pretty good. So it, it was way better than I expected it to be. It was way better than it had any right to be. And I, I saw the original Mortal Kombat that came out in like the 90s because I was working at Blockbuster and I remember renting it as a freebie. And that one was terrible. This one, head and shoulders better. And now again, it's not, I, I, I sort of referenced the Marvel movies. It's nowhere near as good as the Marvel movies, but it's sort of trying to, to be in that vein. So if that's the kind of movie you dig, I would give Mortal Kombat a chance, and it is exceptionally violent, though. It is a hard R-restricted rating for the excessive violence, mm-hmm. but it's based on a video game that's known for its excessive violence, so it does it in that, in that that um, with that in mind. It does it as an homage to the video game, as like it builds on what it's known for, so it's it was fitting. It wasn't just gratuitous. It was there in a way that made sense based on the property it's based on, so anyway, it was pretty decent, Mortal Kombat. Um, then I watched a documentary. For 40 days and 40 nights, he watches documentaries. He likes to learn about the world. It's Derek's Documentaries. Derek's Documentaries. All right. So on Netflix, there mm-hmm. is a new series that dropped, I think, last week, and it's called Bad Sports. Chris, have you seen this in the lineup? No, I haven't even heard of it. Okay, I think it's six episodes. They're an hour apiece, and they're all on different topics. And it's basically about criminal behavior in the sporting world. But they they tell the stories in very interesting ways. So the first episode is what I want to talk about. It's about point shaving. Do you do you know the concept of point shaving? You know mm-hmm. what that's all about. Yeah. Um, so for maybe for those who who are not so much, when two teams play each other and one team is incredibly good and one team is incredibly bad, in order for the betting to make sense. The, the team that is the better team has to win by a certain number of points in order to for you to win the bet. So uh, a team might have a 12-point, they might be a 12-point favorite. So they have to win the game by 12 points or more if you're going to bet on them and win money. If they win the game by less than 12 points, you lose if you've bet on them. Like That's how the betting line will help. Um, they'll help keep action on both sides of it. So this happens all the time in just about every sport that exists. And in 1994, at Arizona State, the basketball team was incredibly good. And there were some other teams in their division that were incredibly bad. And one of the players was given an opportunity to make a little bit of money because, as as many people are aware, the NCAA athletes don't get paid, which is ridiculous considering how much money the schools make off of their talent. And so these athletes that were trying to get by on pennies, pennies a day were offered thousands of dollars to shave points instead of winning by 12 which they were predicted to do someone would come in and say you can still win but you got to win by six instead of 12 so that way the the you know the nefarious people behind the scenes could bet hundreds of thousands and eventually millions of dollars on these games because they knew exactly how much the the difference between the winning and losing team were going to be and eventually 
uh, as is often the case with criminal with criminals, they got greedy, they got careless, they let the wrong people in on the secrets, and suddenly, once the word was out, law enforcement got involved, and uh, bad things happened. And so, this first episode of Bad Sports uh, was fantastic. It runs a little under an hour, and it was about how these college kids who felt they had nothing to lose took this money to, you know, to shave points off the game, and it's it was fantastic. Um, now the other episodes, there's one about a race car driver. There's one about a horse jockey. There's one about a cricket player. So not all the episodes are about your typical American popular sports. Um, but I started watching the one on the race car driver and again, it's, it was pretty good. So I got to recommend this one pretty strongly. It's called bad sports series on Netflix. Very cool. Um, I was able to take in a little bit of pop culture too. And surprisingly enough, mine was a documentary as well. Oh, stop playing that damn thing. <laughs> stop it! That's the learn about the world. It's my documentary, not Derek's documentary. She's our producer, I tell you. Okay, so my documentary was called My Octopus Teacher. Have you heard of this? Oh, I heard of this. Yeah, it was nominated for an Oscar. I think it won the Oscar. Yeah, it did. Um, I think I just should just maybe preface this by saying that I love documentaries. I always have. I mean, just like you, you love documentaries. Um, one of these shows, Derek, we should probably do like a top five documentaries. You know, that would be a good That'd be a tough one, but yeah. yeah. But I got to say, I didn't like this one. It was really dumb. And I like, I didn't like the story. It's, it's about a guy that swims in this kelp patch and he keeps going back to find this same octopus over and over. I didn't like his voice. He was the narrator. There was something really weird kind of slow and boring about the whole thing and it was my wife that wanted me to watch this so and, and she was she was like you she's like oh it won an oscar for best documentary which to be honest i gotta say i, I found that pretty hard to believe i looked it up and you were right it, it did win the best best documentary in 2020 and, and did anyone even go to the movies in 2020 i didn't even think they were even making movies in 2020 but anyway apparently it this crappy documentary called my octopus teacher won best documentary in 2020 i don't know what it beat out for the oscar but i don't know i i would i would probably bet that a documentary called watching paint dry would be better than this stupid thing but oh speaking of stupid things here's your dad joke of the week since we're doing a James Bond film this week, I thought it'd be appropriate to do a James Bond dad joke for you. Okay. All right. So, Derek, why does Daniel Craig have gray hair in the new James Bond movie? Um. Well, he's old, but I'm guessing the answer will be some sort of play on a Bond title. So, I don't know. Because he's got no time to die. Oh, my God. He should make the time. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Why is Princess Leia trying to kill these two guys? Music? Oh, hold on. Let's back that up a bit. I wouldn't go so far as to say I loved it. Okay, I was like, holy <laughs> This guy can say. I have no shame. I am not afraid of getting in front of a crowd and embarrassing myself. I'm not going to take your filthy stolen money. I'm going to give you some musicals. New Oldsmobiles are in early this year. We're going to give you some comedy. This keyboard doesn't have any action left in it. We're going to give you high-speed car chases. Murph and the Magic Tones. I do not believe they're making any sequels to this. Nor should they. You're a good singer. Drop mic. Peace out, yo. We're done. All right, my friend, before we get to our movie for this episode, last time out, 
we once again combined pop culture and fantasy sports. And if you haven't listened to it yet, it's episode 193. We held a fantasy draft where we each had to draft a team of three movies, three TV shows, three songs, and a personal pick, all from the year 1981. And when we were finished drafting our teams, we sent our lists off to our panel of esteemed judges. Um, Which, by the way, we've expanded. We went from seven judges to nine judges. And I should point out, one of the judges is Derek's wife, and three others are like his best friends. So at least we know it's going to be fair, you know. But anyway, the results are in, Derek. And here we go. I got crushed. I'm guessing I got crushed. The first pop culture fantasy draft we did, I won six to one. So then, like I said, we expanded our court to nine judges. And Derek, the final vote tally last week was eight to one. In my oh, opinion. I was going to say nine nothing. Yeah. <laughs> so so you, you held strong I knew you with one win. vote. So. No, yeah, I knew you were going to win because you got Raiders of Lost Ark, which was the coin flip. Whoever got the first pick was taking Raiders, and that was a huge leg up. But you it won, is you what won it the is. coin flip the time before. I know, and. and but then the other one was, remember I said last week I didn't really do my homework? The thing that tripped me up was because Can't Stop, uh, Don't Stop Believing didn't make the top 10 for the songs of the year because it wasn't a huge hit the year it came out. It sort of became a bigger hit after. When I did my last second scouting, it didn't show up on the list. So when you pulled Raiders and then you were able to pull that song right out from under me because I had no idea it was on the list, I knew right away. I'm like, I, I, there's no chance I'm winning this. So... You, you, your superior drafting, your superior knowledge came forward. You won. Hats off to you, buddy. You got to vote, though. I think I think it might have been the same person that voted for your list both times. Well, well Surprisingly enough, she it wasn't your me. wife. No, no, she already told me that. She's like, well, I'm voting for the list of Raiders of the Lost Ark. I'm like, of course you are. I'm like, don't worry. So is everybody else. <laughs> your wife has got great taste in pop culture, as we all know, because she voted for my list both times. Um, our f- pop culture fantasy draft trophy the Funko Fonzie trophy, it, it's going to keep its place on my mantle for now, anyway, until our next draft that we have. We'll probably hold it in about a month, you know. Um, the year that we're going to draft next time is going to be back over to me to pick. You know, I've got to get some thought before I get back. One thing I will mention is, you know, you you know, you know, kind of alluded to this. Like, when it comes to, to, to drafting these things, I always think about, like, the, the end result. Like, and I, I, and I mentioned this, if you back, go back and listen to the episode, I talk about the judges a lot. Like, what do I think the judges will like? Cause I'll yeah. be honest when it came to the personal pick at the end, I didn't go with my actual personal pick that I would have went with. Cause I didn't think that it would curry favor with the judges. So I went with for your eyes only, which was my number two. It's still a good pick, pick though. It's still a good what pick. You, what, it, what did you pass on? What were you considering instead? If I really had to be true to myself and really pick the the thing that was the most personal from 1981, it was Continental Divide. I don't even know what that is. It's a romantic comedy with um, Blair Brown and John Belushi. Loved that movie. And and like Never. nobody likes it. It was a bomb. Nobody like I really like Continental Divide a lot. And, but I thought the judges aren't going to like it. It's not going to resonate. So I decided not to go with it. But anyway, since we covered 1981 in that draft, we felt it was fitting that we go back to that year and we watch a movie from 1981. So 
I thought since there's a new James Bond movie coming out, you know, pretty soon, that it'd be kind of cool to go back and watch the James Bond installment from 1981, which was, as I mentioned, my personal pick, and that's For Your Eyes Only. So Derek, you keep us up to date on all the new pop culture stuff around here. So yep. I, I want to get your take right out of the gate, you know, just in general for now. I mean, we're, we're going to get into more details, you know, as we get into the episode. But in general, how did you like this movie? How does it hold up against the newer films in the franchise? So give us your take. So uh, actually, I forgot to talk about that at the top of the show, and I won't delve into it too much now. But mm-hmm. we actually went and saw the new James Bond movie just this past weekend, No Time to Die. And as you can probably uh, guess since I didn't even have it on my list. I didn't think it was that great. I thought it was just okay, hmm. uh, which I felt was a little disappointing. I mean, it was good, but I think the bar had been set pretty high. I think some of Daniel Craig's outings have been quite strong. And I think this last one, like it wraps up his his uh, tenure as Bond pretty nicely. Yeah, because he's done now, right? He's done, yeah. This one, and the movie was two hours and 45 minutes, which I don't think it had any business being that long. Uh, although it did not really feel like it dragged, which I think is a is a compliment to the film that, you know, usually when a movie's that long, you're looking at your watch halfway through the movie going, when is this thing ending? Which I never did, but yeah, it was it was okay. If you're a fan of Bond, definitely go see it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm glad I got a chance to see it in the theater because there's a lot of sequences that really played out well on the big screen, but uh yeah, I, I wouldn't say, like a lot of people are like, oh, this is the best one with Daniel Craig. And they're like, whoa, whoa, let's let's just take a step back from that that discussion. But so with that sort of still fresh in my mind, and then I watched For Your Eyes Only, you know, the last, uh, I watched it yesterday. So, mm-hmm. um, I mean, I had seen, I've seen all the James Bond movies. So I had seen this one before. It had been a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I Me like too. Roger yeah. Moore. Um, after after um, Daniel Craig, I think, Roger Moore is my favorite Bond because he was he was Bond when I was growing up. So that was my first exposure to the character was Roger Moore is James Bond. I saw a couple in the theater. I saw a couple on video. And then it was like, oh, somebody else did James Bond. Let's go back and watch the Connery ones. Oh, Timothy Dalton is going to play him next. Let's like so in my mind, I've got a, I've got a soft spot for Roger Moore as Bond. I mean, looking back now, there are definitely I have some issues, which we'll talk a little bit about tonight. But overall, this is a good Bond movie. This is a solid one. It's certainly not my absolute favorite. Um, there's definitely some that are better, but there are a lot that are worse. I think this one is sort of right in the middle of the field because there's, what, 25-ish Bond movies now? Like, I would probably put this one somewhere right in the middle. Uh, it There was a lot to like about it, but looking back now, there was a few things that have not aged as well as, you know, they probably could have, although you don't necessarily have line of sight to that when you're making the movie in 1981, so... Mm-hmm. Anyway, that's sort of my, my. I don't want to say it's a hot take, but that's right. my initial take. Well, I like it. And uh, we'll get into some of that stuff as we always do. So I have not seen this movie, you know, in a long, like 30 plus years, you know. Wow. So uh, watched a little bit of it on cable one night years ago. Um, so I really haven't had a chance to sit down and watch the whole thing. I absolutely loved it. I, I thought it was great. It had action. Roger Moore was awesome it had a great song great locations great action sequences you know what it reminded me of raiders of the lost ark another 1981 classic because well, sorry let me cut you off for a second mm-hmm. i had read that uh steven spielberg wanted to direct this this was the one where he was really pushing and the broccoli family who owned the rights to bond was like no we only want british directors for this franchise you're out of luck and that was about the time when lucas came and went 
Well, I got a James Bond like <laughs> property that you might right. be interested in called Indiana Jones. And he's like, okay, fine. That so worked out pretty well. <laughs> yeah. I, I can definitely see uh, why you would sort of have that, have that feeling about this. And I did too. It definitely had a lot of that, which I think a lot of action movies at the time sort of had a similar vibe. So I think the reason for me that I think of Raiders when I watch this is because it seems like every scene in this movie, he's getting out of one seemingly inescapable situation and then into another one. You know, he escapes a guy on skis and then there's like motorbikes after him and he gets done with that and he's going down a luge and then he's scuba diving and then he gets tied up and dragged through like shark infested waters. Like it's just like one thing after another after another. So the movie itself... Let's talk a bit about it. He, it was directed by John Glenn, um, and he made his directorial debut here with this movie. And he also directed the next two Roger Moore Bond movies, as well as Timothy Dalton's two films in the franchise. It was produced by Albert R. Broccoli, and it was made on a budget of $28 million, and it took in $54 million at the domestic U.S. box office. Quite a year. Raiders of the Lost Ark took, you know, took down the box it office. Took all year. the money. Yeah, $212 million. And there was like On Golden Pond and Superman 2. And, but Free Your Eyes only was eighth that year at the box office. Yeah. So it did well. So That no, was decent. It, it, it has all those things you said. Yeah, it's 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 got it, like it's got all these action sequences. Very much like, like Raiders of the Lost Ark, which is obviously based on those old Saturday morning serials yeah. where it's like your hero is in this high octane thing and then manages to get out of it. Then you have a little pause. And then there's this other high acting thing, and then you get a little pause. And I found this movie very much was that that style where it was, you know, go, 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 slow down for a minute. Now go, 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 now slow down for a minute. But I liked it. I mean, it works. And that's that's the kind of thing. Those are the Bond movies I tend to like better. I tend to like better. This movie really took me back. And, and I mentioned on our last show that the year that you turn 11 is a significant year in pop culture for anyone. And, and I, I challenge anyone to go back and take a close look at the year when you turned 11. And I think you're going to find some of your favorite movies and TV shows and songs. They all kind of come from that year. And for me, that was 1981. I was 11 and I, I loved this movie. I, I went to see this in the theater. So now back in 1981, the movie rating system was a little bit different than it is now. So movie ratings obviously have changed a lot you know over the years um for a while there they had a classification called adult accompaniment which meant an adult had to accompany you if you were a kid but back in 1981 they had a classification and it was called adult entertainment and it was between the pg and the r and it was meant basically just to let people know that the movie wasn't quite r-rated but it's got some stuff in it that's probably not appropriate for kids. But the thing was, they didn't enforce it. So if you were 11 like me, you could just go to the movies and nobody said anything to you on the way in. So 11-year-old me went to see For Your Eyes Only. And let me tell you, the opening sequence that's got all these like nude models in silhouette and then there's yeah. this naked girl under this flowing water. You don't quite see anything. But that was a major thing for me when I was 11. (laughs) It had a pretty big impact on me, I gotta say. I remember running to my friends and I was like, you have to see this movie. Oh my God, oh my God. I think I may, uh, Derek, have been single-handedly responsible for helping push this movie past the 54 million bucks on this (laughs) number. So 
Um, and speaking of that opening sequence, the initial shot of James Bond when he walks into the frame with the vignette around him and he fires the gun with the theme music is that question for you. Is this one of the all-time best movie openings? What do you think? Just in general yeah. or in this specific movie? Just in general. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. The I one love thing, it. Though, I love one it thing so that I really much. So a couple of things about this. Um, so in this particular movie, when he does that, he's got bell-bottom pants on. I don't know if you caught that, but it immediately just took me right out of the moment. I'm like, oh, dude, bell <laughs> I didn't bottom? notice. Come no. on. <laughs> Um, I mean, not like full legit bell bottoms, but like definitely not tapered like they would be today. And it just was like, oh man, took me right out of the moment. But no, I love that. One of the things that I didn't realize until maybe 10 years ago was that the circle. So like you have the white circle mm-hmm. that moves across the screen where yeah. it's like, and Bond is in the circle and then immediately turns and shoots. And then usually you get the red blood which is supposed to be blood falling over the white circle Mm -hmm. and the background is always black, but sometimes it has the, the, like the white swirls coming out of the circle. I didn't realize until like literally 10 years ago that that's supposed to be the barrel of a gun from an enemy who's attempting to shoot bond. And the whole idea is that bond turns and shoots him too quickly before he can get the shot off. I had no idea. That's what that was supposed to be all through my teenage and early 20 years. No clue. And then, I don't know, maybe somebody mentioned it or I read it somewhere and I was just like, oh, okay, that makes so much sense. But but even when I didn't know, I didn't care. I just, I, I still think it's very cool. Mm-hmm. Now, one question I was going to ask, and you, you answered this already, was, you know, since you watch all these newer Bond movies, I wanted to know where this movie sort of stacked up. But you said it's kind of in the middle, right? Yeah, but- I would say... It's probably, not only do I think it's in the middle of the Bond pantheon, I would say it's probably in the middle, for me, of Roger Moore's as well. I don't think it's his best, but I don't think it's his worst. Like, he did, he did what, seven? Mm-hmm. And so I like, think this is probably, like, my three or four in the Roger Moore. Oh, it's it's right up there at, like, one or two. Well, maybe Octopussy is even better. Um, so I have a question for you. Who's the best James Bond? It, this has long been a point of debate. Yeah. With pop culture I, I, nerds. I, I got I mean, I have recency bias, so I'm going with Daniel Craig. Really? I think, I think though, for me, part of the reason I like Daniel Craig is that I think they've had 40 years to get it right. And by the time Daniel Craig comes on the scene, they sort of have that right mix of spy and action hero and gadgets and guns and action sequences and romance and I think some of the other Bond movies have really you know fallen on the wrong side of the line on some of those some of them are a little too hokey some of them are a little too gadget heavy some of them are you know they, they don't seem to really play into the spy angle enough I mean and I love I mean I love Pierce Brosnan as Bond, but I think by the time he got to be James Bond, he was sort of a little past his prime, like he was a little too old. And I think by then the movies were trying to be a little more family friendly. So there's like a lot of ridiculous humor that just sort of hurts the movies. But no, I, I mean, for me, it's Daniel Craig. I got to go with Craig. I think the easy answer to the question is always the Bond that you grew up with. Mm-hmm. That's what most people always say. Like, and for me, that was Roger Moore. And in my mind, he was by and far the best Bond. Like, I think head and shoulders above the other actors, as far as I'm concerned. My wife, I asked my wife this, and she's like, no way, man, it's Pierce Brosnan. You know, but the thing is, she's younger than I am. 
She yeah. grew up watching Pierce Brosnan as Bond, right? And and I have watched one of the Daniel Craig movies. You made me watch it for the podcast, Eric. Casino Royale. Yeah. Which I think is his best. And I've gone back, you know, in, in past years, and I've watched Sean Connery in the role. I think he's the number two best Bond, by the way. But I don't know. It's So, so it's not like I haven't watched, you know, the others, because I have, but Roger Moore was the best. He, the thing was, he was good looking, but he, he wasn't too good looking. You know, he was suave and debonair. But most importantly for me, he added just the right amount of humor just to the role. Yeah. It, it made the whole character and, and the movie just that much better. I don't know. Roger Moore was it for me. I, I think. And so I think for me, it's Craig number one and Roger Moore number two over over Sean Connery. Again. I didn't come to the Sean Connery Bond movies until very late, like much later. Like I think Connery was probably the, well, no, I guess George Lazenby would have been the last one, but I had seen Roger Moore. I'd seen Timothy Dalton. I had seen Pierce Brosnan. And I think it, I think it was after I had seen all three of them and all three of them in the theater Mm -hmm. that then on video, I went back and watched Connery stuff. Mm -hmm. And so by then I already had three other bonds. So I was like, okay, I can see the appeal of Connery, but I'm Mm -hmm. like, he was never my bond. And those movies are very dated because they were like made in the sixties. Like they're really old school. And, uh, so yeah, I mean, I mean, I liked Connery in them. Don't get me wrong, but no, I think no. I think Roger Moore is my my definitely my number two mm-hmm. for all the reasons you've said. The only problem I have now is looking back on them. I think I think he's a little old to be playing this character in these movies. And I, I felt that even in this movie, there were some some parts in it where it's like this actor was 10 years younger. Some of these scenes might play out a little better. And I think I might be able to believe it a little more. And I think that's one of the things that the uh, Daniel Craig Bond has been able to do is his role seems they seem to have him in more we'll call it quote unquote age appropriate scenarios <laughs> and if you thought um if you thought he was old in this one he still did two movies after this you know which oh i know yeah um and lazenby you mentioned he only did one you know he was on her majesty's secret service he just did the one which was a decent film not he bad. was just not, not a bad. good he was not a good casting no. choice so. no so so this movie opens up with james bond at the cemetery visiting the grave of Teresa Bond, which is interesting because it's a nod to George Lazenby yeah. in, in his yeah. Bond movie on Her Majesty's Secret Service because yep. that's where Bond married Teresa, who is played by Diana Rigg from the, from the Avengers. And, of course, she was um, Olena Tyrell in Game of Thrones. But oh, anyway, yes, yes. so the movie opens up and he gets into a helicopter and then it, it, it's, it's taken over by remote control by... Blofeld and this was his arch nemesis right but you don't actually see his face they just shoot him from behind you just see his bald head so you just you know it's him right but Donald Pleasance played him back in the Sean Connery movies like like in Thunderball and you only live twice and Telly Savalas the guy that played Kojak actually played Blofeld in the Lazenby movie on her majesty's on her majesty's secret service but the whole opening sequence with the helicopter, the only thing I kept thinking when I was watching this is there's no CGI. And, and for me, that's what made it so good. Like there was yes. an actual stuntman on the side of the helicopter. Like they actually took a wheelchair with a, with a dummy in it, obviously, but yeah. they dropped it down. There's huge smokestack. It just all looks so good. 
you know, at least it did to me. So, yeah. So, Derek, so that, that, so you had said this reminded you of Raiders. Yeah. For me, it was the practical effects that really helped this movie. And to exactly to your point, part of what made me reminisce about movies like Raiders of Lost Ark and thinking about like, oh yes, this is sort of like that was the, um, the, the, spe- the practical effects in place of CGI that we get today. I agree 100%. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the theme song because every James Bond movie has a specific theme song that plays during the opening credits. Ever since, you know, Goldfinger in 64 when Shirley Bassey did that song. It's yep. just been kind of a thing, yep. right? So the, the the opening theme is usually performed by a musical artist that's it's kind of popular at the time, right? So you had, remember you had Tom Jones that did like Thunderball and you know, Nancy Sinatra and Wings and Duran Duran. And then Sheena Easton does this one. So this, the, the theme song for James Bond has almost become bigger than the movie itself, you know? And, 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 it, and the, the, the songs have become a part of pop culture in sort of the zeitgeist in pop culture. So, so Derek, I have a question for you. Yep. What do you think, since you've seen all the James Bond movies, what do you think is the best James Bond theme of all time? View to a Kill by Duran Duran. Ooh, that's a good one. That is a now that that so, is a good one. Yeah, that's my number one in large part because Duran Duran is one of my favorite bands. Like they definitely make my my top twenty of all time, and they may even crest the top ten. Like they are a great band, and if you love eighties music and Duran Duran's not on your all time list, something's wrong. But the Madonna song "Die Another Day." from the Pierce Brosnan movie was very good and was very popular. I like, I would not be surprised if it made the top 10 on the billboard charts when it came out. And then the, the one, the Daniel Craig one from Casino Royale by Chris Cornell from, uh, um, Oh my God, Chris Cornell is, I'm totally blanking on it. Anyway, Chris Cornell, very famous musician, uh, did, uh, the theme song for Casino Royale. Um, that one is very good as well, but it wasn't wasn't like a big chart topper. But no, I got to think the easy answer and my number like my go to for sure. View to a kill Duran Duran. So in the spy who loved me, Carly Simon did. Nobody does it better. No, that's a good one, too. That's a good one for me. But for, I think for me, all time high. Rita Coolidge from Octopussy is probably my favorite. And. The funny I don't think thing I know is, that one. yeah, it, if you heard, if you heard it, you'd you'd know it. And one of the things that I like about it is it's one of the few songs from James Bond movies that is not the same as the title of the film. Well, that's you, the Chris Cornell one's the same thing. Sorry, Chris Cornell is from Soundgarden. That's sorry, I can't believe I blanked on that. Because the, the song "All Time High," um, you got to if you think about it, the movie's Octopussy might have been a bit of a challenge. To write a song called Octopussy, you know. It's, yeah. It, and by the way, I think it's really funny that you can say Octopussy, but you can't say. P-. You get beeped when you say that. Go figure. That's like the Howard Stern one, Blank Willow. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Just like from his movie. Okay, another thing I want to talk about is Bond girls, because this is another thing in James Bond movies, right? These Bond girls, and for most of them. It's all they ever really did in their career. <clears throat> like, you know, actresses like, <clears throat> excuse me, like Maude Adams and Ursula Andress and Carol Bouquet in this movie. The only thing that they did was being a Bond girl. Now, some of them like Halle Berry. I mean, she was a Bond girl in Die Another Day. But she was she was but, pretty famous before she was cast. In yeah, that. but she won an Oscar the year before. 
right? So, yeah. and I guess Diana Rigg, too, like we mentioned her. She was Well, MP. and Femke Jansen was in Goldeneye, the first one with Pierce Brosnan. And I don't think she mm-hmm. was like a household, not that she's really a household name, but she's had a very strong career and been in a lot of big hit movies as well. True, true. Yeah, uh, but point. yeah, that, but that's the exception rather than the norm, for sure. Mm-hmm. So when it comes to this movie, I want to just talk a little bit about the cast. So, so, so Roger Moore, obviously, you know, but he... He didn't do much else other than James Bond. He was he was in the same. Well, he was in. The, yeah, I was gonna say he was in the show The Saint, which yep. was a, Simon that, that obviously was yep. a big part of the resume that got him this job. He was in Cannonball Run. Remember, he was yes. He, he, he was, was basically just playing himself. He was, he was in. Oh no, I was gonna say Mortal Kombat. He was in a movie called The Quest that came out around the same time as Mortal Kombat. That was basically a ripoff of it that had almost the same premise. But after his last Bond movie, after he did View to a Kill, he basically stopped acting. You know, so well, like, and he didn't need to. He yeah. he would obviously done, but he was knighted, right? It was Sir Mar- Sir Roger Moore, and I believe he he did a lot of work with charitable organizations. I want to say UNICEF. I mean, I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure it was UNICEF. He was like a UNICEF ambassador or something. He did like when he stopped acting, he didn't just fall off the face of the earth. Like he he put his life uh, and his name and his reputation to uh, to bettering bettering the world he lived in so you can't you can't fault him for giving up acting no. to move well, on to those I, I don't of, I don't I'm yeah, just, here it is sorry I'm just double checking yeah. here yeah it was UNICEF he was a UNICEF yeah, just, ambassador just pointing out the fact that he didn't do much else now Carol Bouquet she was the Bond girl in this my god it, it, she is an unbelievably beautiful human being like my word oh my god like stunning like oh, I mean I mean she's no Ryan Reynolds you know but but man she is a who good is? looking person you know yeah who is um, but she's another one. She didn't do a whole lot else. I mean, she did a lot of French films. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. she's. I don't believe that English is her first language. And mm-hmm. I don't think that she did a lot of work that would appeal to an American audience. I think she was very successful in Europe, where she did a lot of work in French, which is her native language. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you can't dismiss the success of that. But to your point if you're judging based on the the north american um you know film and tv then yeah you're absolutely right she she didn't my have a big career yeah my wife used to watch sex in the city and she was in an episode of it i remember sarah jessica parker goes to paris to meet barishnikov's ex-wife and it's it's played by her but, oh nice uh, so i remember that but uh but yeah like you said like english is like her second language so she probably acted most and i thought it was funny too she, she's french but she, in this movie she's playing a greek woman typical 80s casting you know yeah like, who cares what the actor's ethnic background is they're foreign they can just play any foreigner Right. It's such a typical American thing to do. Just so well, funny. I think it partly it's her complexion, right? The dark hair yeah. and the yeah. And I mean, uh, again, just her her whole look is like, again, uh, yeah. So. Anyway. So Lois Maxwell played Miss Moneypenny and she played that role in all of Roger Moore's uh, films. Now, they were friends. They met back in their days doing radio and theater together. And I just want to say I, I used to work with this guy. And Lois Maxwell was his aunt. Oh yeah, yeah. Nice. His whole family—they were all in the radio business. And and I never, I never met her, but uh, she was born in Kitchener, Ontario, just like me. And um, she got started doing radio plays before she moved to England to, to work. But um, a couple guys I want to talk about in this movie: Christados, Julian Glover. He was in The Empire Strikes Back. He was in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. 
And he also plays a guy who betrays the hero in that movie. He just he just is a good bad guy. I think he's a great villain because yeah. in Empire Strikes Back, remember he was General Veers. He was like yes. one of Vader's lackeys. And another one was Apostus, Jack Claff. He he was the bad guy henchman. Remember that was hanging over the rope, over the cliff at the end, and he was like banging on those climbing anchors with his yes. gun that yes. made James Bond keep falling. Remember when he kept banging that? He yeah, was in yeah. Star Wars. He was one of the rebel soldiers whose X-wing was like blown up during the trench battle. Oh, and there's another Star Wars connection too. Oh, there's a ton of them. Yeah, keep going. Paul Brook, who played Bunky. Remember the weird looking guy with the funny the eyes? No. He was he was with the countess yeah. at the casino and she kept egging him yep. on to bet more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then James Bond beat him. He was the Rancor's handler in Return of the Jedi. And I also read that the guy who played um, Blofeld from behind, mm -hmm. uh, who we don't actually see his face. He was the guy from Empire Strikes Back who played Lobot, who was the, the bald guy with like that funky earphone piece that Lando City. communicates to yes. in Cloud City. Very yeah, cool. And, and one of the other guys did, um, I was looking through the IMDB and he had a picture on his, on his IMDB. He did the voice of some droids in Empire Strikes Back as well in the Hoth base. And I was like, there's a ton of Star Wars connections in this. And one of the, Lots, one of the yeah. actors whose name I honestly don't remember played Boba Fett. He was the actor who played Boba Fett in Empire is in this movie as well. I think he's one of the hired goons or something. Just some yeah. random pieces of trivia for us Star yeah. Wars nerds. <laughs> yeah, so exactly. Good. Okay. Topol. He played Columbo, the smuggler that joins forces with James Bond. Probably best known as Tevi from Fiddler on the Roof. You ever see that? If I were I have a never rich seen, man. I know the movie, but I looked up this guy's IMDb and I yep. couldn't believe like how much he works. Like he, he will always be and like yeah. Dr. Hans Zarkov from Flash Gordon to me. Yeah. Remember, with Sam Jones. <laughs> yeah. So good. And I want to mention Lynn Holly Johnson. So she played BB, the young figure skater. Mm -hmm. My wife, we were watching this together. My wife was like really grossed out. Cause she's yes. like, she's like so this is I. so creepy, you know? And, and she's like, he, she shouldn't be this love interest of James Bond. But the thing was, I mean, the guy was like 30 years older and I get it, but I, I, I got to point out like, like she was coming on to James Bond, but he was having nothing to do with it. So Which least, was a little surprising, but also a little relieving Yeah, that, uh, you know, cause that was one of the, the issues I had with this movie was, as I mentioned before, I think, I think that Sean Connery, or not Sean Connery, Roger Moore in some of these Bond movies is put in situations where his age compared to his co-stars is a problem. And apparently that's one of the big reasons he stopped being James Bond is he felt that, you know, he couldn't be in these love scenes with these like 20 year old women when he was like 50 um, because of the big age difference. He just felt it was creepy. And I'm glad that, you know, Unfortunately, it took a decade to get there, but I'm glad that he eventually sort of decided that, hey, this is not cool. And yeah, this this really creeped me out when I'm watching this, too. I was like, oh, my God, what's going on here, dude? Well, like I say, he he kind of shunned her. You know, at least there was that. The one thing with 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 Lynn Holly Johnson, she was like this. She was kind of the go to actress back in the 70s and 80s when they needed somebody to play a figure skater. Like she was actually a professional figure skater back in the 70s and she did this movie called Ice Castle 
with yeah, Robbie I saw Benson. that in her IMDb, and I thought, oh, she must actually be a decent skater if they keep casting her as a figure skater. Yeah, like in that movie, she was this figure skater, and she had to overcome an injury to get back on the ice. They wanted her to do a nude scene in that movie, and she refused. In ice castles or in yeah, James Bond? In ice castles. In ice castles. And she yeah. refused. Good for yeah, her. She refused. But at least Robbie Benson was more her age in that one. But okay. So anyway, so this movie, like I was mentioning, about fifteen years ago or so. Um, this movie was on cable and I put it on and I was like maybe halfway through the movie and my wife hated it. She said it was boring. Really? Can you, can you imagine the nerve of her? I mean, just to me, it's just one cool scene after the, another. It's just so good. But uh, needless to say, we didn't watch it very long. So I have not seen this movie since the 80s. Like I said, um, I thought it was interesting. The ATAC, you know, it's supposed yeah. to be this state of the art technology the little board thing, it reminds me of this Star Trek command console that I had, like back in the late 70s as a kid, you know? Nice. And, and one thing I, I should mention too about this movie, back in the day, before we had VHS, the only way you could have a connection to a movie was by buying the soundtrack, like on an LP album. Yep. Right. Millennials have no idea what I'm talking about nope. right now. But I had a collection of movie soundtracks when I was a kid. I, I freaking loved movies when I was young. I mean, I, I, hell, I still do, right? But I, I, I still love those old movies, you know? Nothing new there. But I listened to this soundtrack when I was a kid over and over. And it all came back to me when I was watching it this week, especially during like the ski chase. Like the music is just so early 80s, but I was just, I was taken back to when I was 11, just listening to the soundtrack. I was a real nerd. <laughs> no <day>. kidding. <laughs> back in the Wait, day. you were a real nerd? <laughs> yeah, I still am, I guess. Past tense? Yeah. So hang on, I want to I want to rewind a couple of points you just made sure. here. So when you talked about the, the what is it, the ATAC? The ATAC, device. Yeah. So what it reminded me of was one of those NTN trivia boards you go to the bar <laughs> Yes. <laughs> now you just play them on your phone. Yeah. But a decade ago, they actually gave you a little like portable yep. thing with the buttons and you press the end. That's immediately what I thought of. I'm like, oh my God, it's like a trivia thing. Um, so that that made me laugh. The other thing, so I want to talk about the music. So you talk about soundtrack. Now, I believe what you're really talking about is the score, right? We're, we're, we're The theme song aside, we're talking about the score for a minute. And well, the album had all of it on it. It had the, okay, well, it had the, the theme song, it had the score, it had the different scene sure. music, yeah. But it's not like uh, it's not like a musical where you have like, here's a song, here's a song, here's a song with lyrics and all the rest of it. It's like, for the most part, mm -hmm. I want to just talk about the score, the actual yeah. background music. And one of the things that I felt really hurt this movie and that dated this movie was the score in that it sounded very disco influenced and very yeah. techno like uh, new wave pop sort of it, like it took me right out of the movie because the music just sort of felt painfully dated and all I kept thinking was you know Star Wars came out a few years earlier and they demonstrated that if you go with a classical score that is, is essentially a timeless piece of music mm -hmm. you're less likely to run into this problem where your music is now dating the film. Uh, now, obviously, the things that, that are depicted in the film and that happen, it clearly takes place in the early 80s. There, there's no denying that, and they're not trying to, and they never intended to. 
but the music just like mm. but takes it out in the most painful way for me i dislike the score of this so much that to me was my one of my biggest painfulest regrets of this movie was i felt the score really hurt this movie but but you know james bond movies are it's not star wars so it's not no, you know, know. rooted in orchestral music the whole point of james bond movies is that they go with the music of the times that's why well, but they don't anymore because i think they've learned that that can hurt the longevity of the film and i gotta bet if you go back to those early sean connery ones when they probably weren't overthinking it I'll bet those ones hold up a little better too because they, they sort of have a more timeless mm-hmm. quality. This one to me was more, yeah. we got to get on this. This is the popular kind of music and this is what's big now. And and I think a lot of movies fell into this trap. Um, but this, this to me, this was like a real pain point was I had a lot of, I had a lot of uh, problems getting past the, uh, I mean, I love the theme song, but the score just killed it for me. Mm, I get it. The, the pool scene there's a guard that's making out with one of the girls in a bikini and her bikini top it slips down and you get a bit of a glimpse I never noticed that before oh I, I didn't even notice it this time I did and let me tell you how that got by 11 year old me is a complete mystery <laughs> <laughs> you think I would have picked up on that when I was a kid watching it but no um, so then right after that scene they get into a car chase and they go through these narrow streets in San Martin and I was waiting for it, but no fruit stand. No fruit stand. I said that too. I'm like, we're going to get a fruit yeah. stand here? There was many opportunities for it to happen. There's probably about four or five fruit stands, but it didn't run into a single one. So James Bond ev- evaded one of my uh, pop culture uh, pet peeves, you know. Well, he certainly hit on, he hit on one of mine was, um, uh, so one of the things that I love about, so there's certain, can, like when, when Bond, is, there's been 25 Bond movies. Again, I keep throwing that number out there. I don't know if it's absolutely correct, but it's in that neighborhood. And eventually over time, James Bond will do similar kinds of sequences. And I love any sequence where Bond has to go skiing. And I love any sequence where Bond has to scuba dive. I don't know why. I just find those are generally two circumstances where you can get a lot of action done. Uh, There's a lot to play with there. They were both in this movie. And they were both in this movie. And so both of those, both of the sequences, uh, were were high up on my you know what are your favorite scenes but the skiing one for me was great in this one especially because he gets on the bobsled track for a while and the guys are chasing my motorcycles and then he's skiing around and all the rest of that um i thought it was great i loved it but it had one of my pet peeves in that in part of the skiing situations like the guys weren't wearing hats and it's like <laughs> this bugs me to no end it's cold it's winter there's snow on the ground you wear a damn that. hat yeah. yes i know you're the star of this movie and we need to see your pretty face and your beautiful hair but come on this ticks me off to no end so it, it didn't happen all the time with all the characters but enough of the characters weren't wearing hats that it bugged me a little bit um but no i i love the whole sequence where he's on the skis it's great there is a james bond movie and i can't remember which one it is maybe you'll know where he's there's this whole skiing sequence and then at the end of the skiing sequence he like jumps off a cliff and then opens up a parachute and it's the the british flag on the parachute do you remember which bond movie that was i don't i think it might be diamonds are forever but i i could be wrong 
I can't remember which one it is, but that's another Bond sequence that I – and I thought that's where this one was going, but then I'm like, no, no, he clearly isn't wearing a parachute, so that can't be this one. And then, of course, they had uh, a whole sequence where they're underwater and the diver, and then they get dragged around later mm-hmm. on, and it's like – so, again, I, I just I, – as someone who has learned to scuba dive, like, I, I just – I love all the underwater sequences. So, no, this, this movie had a lot of good scenes to me, but the skiing part was definitely my favorite. One of my favorite scenes, I think, was with Q, when he's got all the gadgets – and Bond just makes all these comments about everything just for comic relief. And yeah. they get to this thing called the identigraph. And it's <laughs> it's this computer that acts as kind of like a computerized police sketch artist, you know? Yeah. So so Bond sits down with Q and he describes Locke. Mm-hmm. How the hell does he remember all of these minute details about yeah. this guy? He saw the guy for like five seconds across a pool filled with bikini clad models and he's all like eyes a little smaller blue yeah a little grayer mouth fuller octagonal glasses if q were sitting in my living room with the identigraph i wouldn't be able to describe my wife that well (laughs) like i mean what the hell that part that scene kind of threw me for a loop so yeah no, I agree. I agree. I, I thought again, you sort of there's some things with Bond, especially with some of the gadgets. They're definitely phony baloney, but you just have to accept them. Although I was reading that apparently before this movie came out, after the last couple of Bond films, there's a lot of a lot of criticism that, oh, Bond's relying too much on special gadgets and special effects. So they almost made a point in this one where they didn't give him any real funky gadgets. And in fact, they blew up his special car in the opening sequence to sort of say to the audience, like, hey. We're not giving him any funky special gadgets. He's got to rely on his wits, his mm-hmm. his ability, his athleticism. We're going to give him a gun so he can shoot people. And then he's going to have to just handle everything else on his own. And, um, and I, I mean, these are always my favorite bonds where I like the gadgets, but I don't want them to take away from the movie. Like, if all you can do is use gadgets, just give him a cape and call him Batman. Like, that's Batman shtick. Mm-hmm. Uh, James Bond, to me, is supposed to be the spy the investigator, the, the, you know, he's undercover and Hey, if he's got like a watch that can do something cool, great. But I don't want to have the watch and the glasses and the, the, the little pocket thing where you hold your cigarettes and the special car. And the, it's like, come on already. So I actually liked that in this one, there weren't a lot of gadgets, even though we saw him go through Q's lab and there was demonstrations by some of the other people do, using ridiculous things as there often is. But, um, for the most part, it was like just when he's in the field, He's on his own. The scene when he goes into his hotel room and the steam from the shower makes a message appear on the mirror. This this brought back some memories for me because I got to say this works. I can, oh, yeah. att- I can attest to this. When I was a kid, I used my finger to write on the mirror and I wrote some like bad words. And then <laughs> later my dad went and took a shower and the words reappeared and I got grounded. So it, this, this does actually work. I just, I, that came back to me. Um, I have a question for you. Are all James Bond movies based on Ian Fleming novels? Not at all. Well, the early ones, I believe, were based, uh, or at least we'll, we'll, you know, use the air quotes again, inspired gotcha. by the novels. Uh, I believe this one was inspired by a short story um, called For Your Eyes Only, but borrowed elements from some of the other ones. But I know eventually... You know, it's like the Game of Thrones thing. You run out of books. It's like, okay, now yeah, what do we do? That's Let's what just I thought. Make yeah. it up as we go. And I think, I think that's more. That's definitely where they have been for the last fifteen or twenty years. Probably the last six, seven, eight, nine Bond movies. It's like, well, we don't have any more books to draw upon, and and 
again, the books I think are a product of their era and they certainly have tried to update the content as the movies were being made because the, if the book is 20 years old, some of the things that are depicted and some of the attitudes that are written about, while they may have been deemed acceptable at the time, they certainly didn't age well. And even in the 80s, I think they realized we can't we can't make movies of some of these books as they're written because they're not going to fly. And um, yeah, so I think I think uh, that's where we ended up landing on these things. Gotcha. OK, the scene on Topol's yacht I want to talk about. I noticed the camera keeps rocking back and forth to, to give the impression of being on a ship. And they, they did this in a couple of other scenes, too. You know, so, so it doesn't give the impression that the actors are just on some, you know, some soundstage and some right. back lot, right? Uh, it just, it, there was a lot of scenes on boats in this movie. I noticed this a lot. Um, but speaking of that, there was a lot of exotic locations. And this is definitely a thing in James Bond movies, right? Like In, in, the, in the absolute best way, it's a thing. It's, it's kind of cool. Like they go from exotic location to exotic location. They're skiing in the Alps and then they're like diving in Corfu and they're in the Bahamas. It's pretty cool. And they, it was a big part of the movie for me. Do they still do this in the newer James Bond movies too? Oh, absolutely. And I mean, to me, this is one of the things, this is why I love James Bond as, as a Canadian who is exposed to a ridiculous amount of American content which can often be great. A lot of American content to me always depicts the US as, you know, we are the best, we're gonna save everybody, you know, nobody does it better than America. And in some cases, great. In some cases, it seems to be true. And in some cases, it makes for great storytelling. But what I love about the James Bond franchise is he's a British character. He's, you know, he works for the English government, but he is international. And very few Bond movies actually take place in the continental United States. And Bond goes wherever the story takes him, and it always seems to take him to other countries. And I just, I love this this idea that if you are a player on the world stage, you need to be worldly. You need to travel. You can't just stay in your home country and solve everything, especially when the villains uh, that are opposing your government. Cause uh, like at the end of the day, he's a government worker. He works for the British government. The agents that are, are out to harm your, your government or your citizenship, they're not going to be refined uh, or restricted rather to one place in the world. So I always just love that about James Bond movies that he goes where the clues point him. Where are the bad guys operating? Where do I need to go to, to find out what they're doing next or where are they going next and how do I get there ahead of them? And every Bond movie does this and it's great. And I mean, it's a good excuse for the people who make James Bond movies to go all over the world sure. to yeah. these exotic locations. Like I bet you, if you look, almost every James Bond movie probably takes place in at least one, we'll call it like vacation place, like somewhere warm, like the <laughs> right. Caribbean or the, the, you know, the Mediterranean coast in the summer or Australia or, you know, something like that. He's always seems to be at least in one place that is exceptionally picturesque and beautiful and warm. And it gives you a good excuse for all the ladies to get into bikinis. And I love it. It's great. That's always been one of my favorite parts about the James Bond uh, storytelling is just that it, it takes him everywhere around the world. Remember that scene where he was driving the Neptune submarine and and he scrapes against the underwater pillar? It's like that sculpted Greek column thing. Yeah. And she's like, careful, James. 
it's 5,000 years old. Yeah. I, I don't know if it was supposed to be played for humor, but for whatever reason, that made me laugh out loud. I don't know why. That made me chuckle. And then at the very end, when they go skinny dipping in the ocean, and she says to him, for your eyes only. I have a question. Yes. Does this mean for your eyes only, or does it mean for your eyes only? Because yeah. those are two very different things. Yeah, no, I thought the same thing. And I'm really hoping what she meant was, you can look at me all you want, but you're not touching me because you're a gross old man. <laughs> uh, that, that was really how I hope that That's was That's the 2021 lens. Yeah, right? and I think if you're an old white man watching this movie, you're like, no, man, she's totally giving it up for him. It's for him and nobody else. I'm like, I don't think so. I certainly hope not. Because it's up to the actress to put the emphasis on the right word. And I don't know if she quite, but to me, it felt like she was saying for your eyes only. Like, I don't know. So it was a little creepy. Um, Yeah. Again, remember, English isn't her first language. So she would have taken whatever direction she was provided by the, you know, creepy old director. (laughs) That's why I struggled with. I didn't know what it was. Oh, and one thing I wanted to mention too before we wrap up. The end of the credits, if you stick around till the very end of the credits. Yep, which it, I did. It, I did too. And it says, James Bond will return in Octopussy. Yep. Do they still do this? Did they always do this? Did they always foreshadow the next film? The earlier ones always gave you the title of the next movie. In the more recent ones, it just says, James Bond will be back. Ah, okay. Unless they already had the title, which I don't think they did for a lot of these ones. Although I think in the Daniel Craig ones, one of them said James. Bo- I think that uh, it said James Bond will be back in Spectre when they knew the next one was going to be Spectre. I think that's the only Daniel Craig one that that gave you the title of the next movie. I think the other ones just continue to say James Bond will return or will be back or something gotcha. of that nature. All right. Yep. Well, thanks for going back in time 40 years and watching this movie with me. I really do appreciate it. Time now for fun with Caveman. Derek, it was my movie this week, so yep. it's over to you for trivia. So yep. uh, what do they get lined up for me, All my right. friend? So, I mean, we've already done a James Bond movie before, mm-hmm. and we've done a Sean Connery episode. So yeah. I knew I couldn't do anything related to the Bond franchise or anything like that, because right. we would just be bringing up the same thing. Gotcha. So the movie is called For Your Eyes Only. Mm-hmm. So I looked up other movies that have the word eye or eyes in the title. Okay. There are a ridiculous amount of movies really? that use the word I or I spelled I E Y E. Like, I'm not going to trip you up and be like, I robot, which is like the letter I. No, no, no. Right. I mean, like, literally, it's I like in your head. I. So I've got I think it's about 15 movies here. Every answer will have I or eyes in the correct answer. I just want you to give me the title of the movie. Uh, I'll give you a clue. I'll give you the, the synopsis of the movie. In some cases, I may also tell you who starred in it if I think it's a little obscure. And I can give you the year if you're really stuck. Some of them are a little newer. I'm sorry. I tried not to get too many newer ones because there were a lot in the last 15 years. But I definitely went the other way and pulled a lot from the 60s and 70s, which might, again, be a little out of your wheelhouse the other way. But we'll, we'll start. We'll go down the list and we'll see how you do. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, yeah, just remember... Everyone has I or I's in the answer. Okay. All right. And in some cases, uh, I know that you get a little excited when you know the answer and you jump right in. So let me finish reading. And then if you know, jump in with the answer. Okay. I I shall do my best. 
Okay. Uh, actually, I'm going to give you the year because I think that that'll help. So this one is from 1981, which is the year we're doing tonight, which is why I'm starting off with this one. A San Francisco Police Department undercover narcotics cop aims to avenge his partner's death and destroy a drug smuggling ring operated by the Chinese triads. Was Chuck Norris in this? Was it Starring Eye for an Eye? Chuck yes. Norris, Christopher Lee, and Richard Roundtree at Eye for an Eye. Yes. yes. <laughs> nice. Awesome. I'd never even heard it. Most of these I'd never heard of until right. I looked them up. Hmm. Okay. This next one is from 1999. I'm just going to start by saying one word. Fidelio. Oh, God. I have no idea. Okay, I'll give you the synopsis. A Manhattan doctor embarks on a bizarre night-long odyssey after his wife's admission of an unfulfilled longing. Oh, is it Eyes Wide Shut? It is yes. Eyes oh, Wide Shut. Nice, nice. Wow. Okay. All right. Cool. Okay. This one is from... Originally, this one is from 1977. Okay. It was remade in 2006. A family wow. falls victim to a group of mutated cannibals in a desert far away from civilization. Oh, that's tough. I I don't know. It was called The Hills Have Eyes. Oh, yes. The Hills Have Eyes. Yes. Didn't have you seen either, either version? I've never seen either version, but I've heard they're both great. If I, remember, I remember the Hills of Eyes part two. Okay. I remember that one. All right. So this one was originally from 2009 and was remade in 2015. I've got a few clues for you because you may okay. not get it just from the synopsis. A retired legal counselor writes a novel hoping to find closure for one of his past unresolved homicide cases and for his unreciprocated love with his superior, both of which still haunt him decades later. Is it Eye of the Needle? It is not. Hmm. The original in 2009 was a foreign film from Argentina, all oh. in Spanish, and the remake was from the U.S. in English. It was from 2009 and 2015. For some reason, I thought I thought it was the '80s. I wasn't listening. Sorry. No, nope. I didn't know. Uh, this also made my top five list of best foreign films from one of our previous episodes. Any guesses? <laughs> Movies called "The Secret in Their Eyes." Okay. It was great. You should check it. I haven't seen the English version, but the original was fantastic. Won an Oscar for best foreign film. All right, this one back in your wheelhouse, 1985. All right. A stray cat is the linking element of three tales of suspense and horror. Oh, it's a uh, cat's eye. Yes. Yeah. Drew Barrymore. Yeah, Drew Barrymore. Woods. It was based on Stephen King. Yeah. Oh, see, I didn't know that. Yeah. yeah. Okay. This was a little newer, but uh, it was a kind of a popular movie, so you might know it. it's from 2014. Oh, I'll be screwed. A drama about the awakening of painter Margaret Keene her phenomenal success in the 50s, and the subsequent legal difficulties she had with her husband, who claimed credit for her work in the 60s. It was directed by Tim Burton, and it stars Amy Adams and Christoph Waltz. Couldn't tell you. It's called Big Eyes. Big Eyes, okay. All right. Because all the paintings had characters with like these giant gotcha. anime-style big eyes. Right. All right. All right, this one's from 1972. A straight-laced British banker hires a strange private detective to follow his free-spirited American wife, whom he suspects is cheating on him. The wife becomes aware of the detective following her and leads him through London in a sort of game. I would say that's the eyes of Laura Mars. 
It is not. Oh, but geez. I'll give you a couple of additional hints. Okay. It stars Mia Farrell and Topol, who appeared in the movie we watched tonight. Oh, interesting. Um, don't know, though. It was also the same name as a totally unrelated film in 1992 that starred Joe Pesci. Nope. Doesn't help. It was called The Public Eye. Nope. No idea. Which I'd never heard of, and I thought, oh, this actually sounds pretty good. <laughs> All right. Here's a newer one, but again, it was pretty popular. From 1998. A shady police detective finds himself in the middle of a murder conspiracy at an important boxing match in Atlantic City Casino. It's directed by Brian De Palma and stars Nicolas Cage and Gary Sinise. Is it Eye for an Eye? It is not. No. It's called Snake Eyes. Oh, Snake Eyes. Okay. And it has one of these um, opening sequences that runs for like four or five minutes with no cuts. It's uh, pretty impressive, even though the movie was just sort of ho-hum. Hmm. All right, going way back, 1955. All right. Stars Mickey Rooney. A reverend goes west to a town where the Indians killed his priest father and burned his church, but the local townsfolk are keener about cash than religion. Uh, I don't know. I'll say eye for an eye. No, it's no, called The Twinkle in God's Eye. Oh, okay. I thought that one might be a bit of a stretch. But I'm like, ah, Mickey Rooney's a pretty big star. You might mm. know. Nah. Okay, this one's uh, from 1999. An English auctioneer proposes to the daughter of a mafia kingpin, only to realize that certain favors would be asked of him. Stars Hugh Grant in the title role and James Caan. I have no idea. It's called Mickey Blue Eyes. Okay. It was just okay. Yeah. All right. Back into Chris's wheelhouse, 1986. All right. Returning home from prison... A Vietnam War veteran sets, uh, sets out to clean up his hometown, which has come under the control of a violent motorcycle gang. Stars Gary Busey and Yafit Kodo. No idea. It's also the name of a popular song by the band Survivor. Oh, is it Eye of the Tiger? It's called Eye of the Tiger, baby. <laughs> didn't, even, didn't even know that was a movie. Go figure. No. All right. Here's a new one that I'm sure you're not going to get, but we'll throw it out anyway. A woman is kidnapped by a stranger on a routine flight. Threatened by the potential murder of her father, she is pulled into a plot to assist her captor in a political assassination. Stars Rachel McAdams and Killian Murphy. No idea. It's called Red Eye. It oh, was actually I'm, really I'm good. I'm sure it is. Okay. This one's newer, but I think it's easier. Okay. This is a movie based on G.I. Joe's most popular hero as he gets his own spin-off movie. I know. It's also the name of one of the movies that you already answered a trivia question on. Uh, I don't know. Snake Eyes. Oh, Snake Eyes. There was more than one Snake Eye movie, apparently. Yep. Oh, cool. All right. I only got a couple left here. This one's from 1981. It's the year that we just did, so okay. I know you should know this. A ruthless German spy trying to get out of Berlin with vital information about D-Day must spend time with a young woman and her crippled husband. Oh, that was Eye of the Needle. Yes, yes. Eye of the Needle yeah. from Donald Sutherland. Donald Sutherland, yep. Again, I'd never heard of it until I looked it up. Okay, this one is super cheese. It was rated 3.8 out of 10 in the IMDb, which would give you a sense of how great it is. Mm -hmm. When I read the synopsis and saw the poster, I had to include it. 
an alien is sent to Earth to retrieve a drug that was sent here on a black disc and has to fight her race's enemies who are also on Earth searching for the same drug. No idea. It's called Alien Private Eye. <laughs> of and course it, looks it is. So cheesy. <laughs> yeah, I had to include I knew you'd have no idea on that one, but I'm like, I have to include this. The poster looks ridiculous. Okay, the last one, super easy. Okay. The only other James Bond movie that fits into this category. Oh, is Goldeneye. Goldeneye! Ding, ding, ding. Yes. All right. Oh, nice. Finish strong. Oh, okay. right. There we go. So uh, next week, Derek, our movie pick is over to you. So our, our pop culture fantasy draft was from 1981. We made that clear. I picked a movie from that year. So it's up to you to also pick a movie from 1981. What do you have for us? All right. So... There's a lot of good movies that came out in 81, as we have yes, talked about there many times. Yeah. And when I started going through the list, we have already reviewed a lot of them, like seven or eight of them. Like, so I was like, there please was not- be stripes, please be stripes. Oh, we already did that one. We already did Shoot. that one. Yeah. No, there, there were a, like all my, like my first five choices were like, <laughs> already did that one, already did yeah. that one, already did that one. So I'm like, okay, well, so I had to, I had to sort of go to the B team on this one. Okay. But there were still some good choices. So still a lot. Yeah. Now, the only challenge with this pick is I could not find it available on any of our streaming services. So mm-hmm. both you and I may be making a trip to Amazon to buy a copy of it. <laughs> we could do that, yeah. The movie I want you to watch, which I'm sure you've seen before, but we're going to watch again, is the John Carpenter classic, Escape from New York. Oh, wow. That's a great pick. I'm sure you've seen this before. I have not. Really? Believe it or not, I have not seen this movie. I don't know why, but it just, it, it escaped me for some reason. Oh, oh, oh I see what you did yeah, there. Yeah, a little pun. No, this, this, this no is a I have movie. never seen that movie, but I've heard nothing but good things about it. Love John Carpenter. But I just, I don't know why, it just never, never just really, I don't know. It was, it was never on the movie channel or whatever, and so I just never watched it. So it, it never became part of my, uh, my movie uh, collection. So nice I've never buddy. seen it. This is a great opportunity for me Co-starring to Co-starring Adrian Barbeau, yes. an 80s, 70s and 80s classic. Mm-hmm. It's It's got uh, the guy who did, um, um, what's his name? Isaac Hayes, who sang the song from Shaft, is in this. Ernest Borgnine is in this. He was also chef from South yes, Park. Yes, from South Park, yes. No, this has a lot of like, oh, I know that guy. Oh, yeah, look who that is. There's a lot of people in this where you're like, oh, my God, I had no idea this person was in this movie. Um, it, it it does show on cable from time to time. Um, and I think maybe a year ago or so, my wife and I caught like the last 45 minutes of this. Mm-hmm. And we're like, man, we really got to pick this one up. But we don't have, I, I thought we had purchased it, but we have not. So yeah, you and I are going to have to try and find copies of this for next week. We'll come back. We'll talk about uh, John Carpenter's Escape from New York. Nice. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll see where this one takes us. Hopefully we got some good dialogue we can get on this. And wasn't Donald Pleasance in that one too? And he, he was Blofeld in, in some of the James Bond movies. Uh, honestly, I don't remember. I, oh, okay. yeah, I think, yeah. yes, I think he plays the president, if I remember correctly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, I, oh, this this is going to be cool. I'm really looking forward to this. This is one of the things I love about this podcast. Get to go back and watch movies that I love from Gen X. And I get to go back and watch movies that I've never seen from Gen X. So it just makes it even better. So nice. oh, this is going to be awesome. Nice. I'm looking forward to it. All right. So we will come back next week and we will watch Escape from New York with Kurt Russell and Donald Pleasance, apparently. And um, and then we'll review the movie and we'll go from there. That'll be awesome. So until then, this is Chris McBrien on behalf of myself and Derek Myers 
Thanks for listening to Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. Thanks for listening to Pop Goes Your World. You can contact Chris and Derek at popgoesyourworld.com. Please take a minute and review the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download and listen to the show. 